welcome back. I'm Rachel Blevins, and this is The Backstory. So let's get into the latest that we're hearing from on the ground in Gaza. There are reports that negotiations to secure the release of captives held by Hamas are advancing, according to the White House, but nothing yet has been finalized. That's as UN Chief Antonio Guterres says that the number of civilians killed in Israel's war on Gaza has been unparalleled and unprecedented since he took office in 2017. And other updates, Al Jazeera is reporting that Israeli tanks have surrounded the Indonesian hospital in Gaza, where at least 12 people were killed following direct Israeli strikes since this morning. And Gaza's health ministry director dismissed Israel's claim that it had found a Hamas tunnel at the Al-Shifa hospital, describing it as a pure lie. That's as more than 13,300 people have been killed in Gaza by Israel's bombardment since October 7th. And what's notable here is that we've had a lot of talk about Israel targeting the northern half of the Gaza Strip. Obviously, it has been targeting the entire Gaza Strip, but it was calling for civilians to go to the southern half, saying that it was going to be carrying out this bombardment specifically in the northern half. And now not only are they continuing to target the southern half where those civilians are supposed to be going, but the U.S. is standing by them. As antiwar.com is reporting, a U.S. official said on Sunday that Israel has the right to expand its military operations in southern Gaza, but said the Biden administration is looking for delay in the plan to account for the hundreds of thousands of civilians who have fled fighting from the north. We heard from U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor John Finer. He told CBS News that, quote, in the event that we believe that Israel is likely to embark on combat operations, including in the South, we believe both that they have the right to do that, but that there is a real concern because hundreds of thousands of residents of Gaza have fled now from the North to the South at Israel's request. He went on to say, we think that their operation should not go forward until those people, those additional civilians, have been accounted for in their military planning. And so we will be conveying that directly to them and have been conveying that directly to them. Now, Israel has been bombing southern Gaza throughout the war, even after telling Palestinians in the north to flee to the south. But now Israeli officials are vowing to further expand their war in the south, and ground operations are expected. Reuters reported on Saturday that more civilian casualties are expected in the southern offensive, but that Israel is not deterred by that fact very clearly as they've continued on with this entire bombardment while Feiner and other U.S. officials are saying publicly that they want Israel to limit civilian casualties, the U.S. is not using any leverage that it has over Israel and continues to provide military aid unconditionally. Gaza's health ministry said Sunday that the death toll in Israel's assault has exceeded 13,000 Palestinians, including over 5,500 children. 5,000 children killed, and yet the U.S. is not using any of that as a reason to call for Israel to stop this bombardment, to agree to a ceasefire. Now, when it comes to what is coming out of the Al-Shifa hospital, a big story there has, of course, been the babies, the babies that have been forced out of their incubators, a, a story that would have a cap had captured public attention decades ago, but yet now it seems as though 
no one really cares about the babies that are there. Antiwar.com is also reporting that 31 premature babies have been evacuated from northern Gaza's Al-Shifa hospital to southern Gaza, where they are being prepared to enter Egypt for medical care. While the, when the Israeli siege on Al-Shifa began, there were 39 babies in the neonatal ICU who were removed from their incubators due to power outages. Eight died before they could be evacuated, including two who, who were pronounced dead before the rescue operation. The World Health Authority the World Health Organization, excuse me, said that 31 babies were evacuated in Palestinian Red Crescent ambulances. The WHO said that doctors found all the babies are fighting serious infections due to lack of medical supplies and impossibility to continue infection control measures in the Al-Shifa hospital. After visiting the hospital, the WHO described Al-Shifa as a death zone with a mass grave at the entrance as dozens of patients have died. About 250 patients in serious condition remain at the hospital with about 20 hospital workers left to take care, care of them. So a very dire situation all there, there all around. And if you're wondering what Joe Biden is doing, or at least what his team is doing, they were busy writing an op-ed for the Washington Post. And it is titled, the U.S. won't back down from the challenge of Putin and Hamas. Now, they say that Joe Biden wrote this. I don't necessarily think that he did. However, it is notable because this is what the administration is putting out there that they think that the American people need to see right now as we have a very high disapproval of Joe Biden and his administration. And in doing so, they try to basically justify the ongoing U.S. military aid to both Israel and Ukraine, because, of course, Biden is fundraising right now. He wants Congress to pass more money. And so he's talking about that. But he also is basically arguing that it's up to the U.S. to be the peacemaker around the world. And yet at the same time, he's talking about funding more wars, basically saying that the, the way that we get to more peace is through more wars and more death and more destruction. I don't quite understand that logic, but yet that is what his team put forward. So let's get into all of this with our next guest. Joining me now to discuss is James Carey, editor and co-founder at Geopolitics Alert. James, it's great to have you on the show today. Good to be back. I want to start off with this op-ed from, I guess, Biden's team. I, I don't know that he wrote this one, but they are trying to draw the public focus specifically to Putin and Hamas calling this group and this international leader of the largest country in the world the challenges that the United States is facing right now. Uh, what do you make of this op-ed and the fact that Biden's team is putting it out right now? I think that there's obviously an effort to retie military aid to allies like Ukraine to Israel, because obviously the Israel offensive is much more popular than the Ukraine offensive ever was. And I think you're seeing an attempt to sort of bring back a, what we've always been going, you know, what we've been going through since 2016 with Russia. Russia has to be the number one enemy, and Russia's been since Hillary lost the election. I think we're seeing a sort of an attempt to tie those together once again, because more people have soured on Ukraine. It's definitely fallen to the back of the media spotlight. Obviously, we're not hearing about that as much. And I think that you 
they know the war in Ukraine is essentially over if the aid stops running. And I think this is a chance to try and tie somehow, rhetorically tie somehow Hamas and Putin together, which is obviously pretty ridiculous because there's, you know, these are two totally different contexts. Uh, Putin, for what the liberals would say, is invading another country. And Gaza, I mean, I don't, the liberals don't say much about it as far as people of Gaza are concerned, but that's a resistance movement. That is an, you know, there's active occupation in Gaza. Whether it was occupied or not before, it was still blocked off and blockaded by the Israelis. So I think they're trying to tie this actual legitimate resistance movement in with a war that seems pretty much pointless and basically over in Ukraine by bringing up, you know, Putin again, by making Putin the big scary specter that's haunting Europe. Yeah, it's interesting because he tries to make this argument basically for proxy wars, right? He's saying, oh, well, you know, if we don't keep Putin in check, then all of Europe is going to pay the price and pointing out to the fact that U.S. boots on the ground are not involved. It's just our money. It's just our weapons being sent over there. Therefore, we should be grateful to all of the Ukrainians who are giving their lives, who the U.S. military industrial complex has shown that they don't care about. But what also stuck out to me, too, is that typically presidents and those who are campaigning for office, they campaign on ending the endless wars, right? They come in and they say, we're going to fix things. We're going to get the U.S. out of everyone's business. But Biden also seems to be campaigning on more war, on we need to continue this fight. And what he calls these commitments, yet the American people never voted for these wars. So how do you expect the public to receive this message that Biden and his team are sending? I don't think anyone's going to be particularly happy. Let me say, I don't think any Republican is going to change much in policy-wise. I don't think they're really going to seek peace around the world. But I think that after Afghanistan, you know, we saw the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, there is no stomach for boots on the ground anywhere in the world by U.S. voters. Um, nobody's clamoring to go back to Afghanistan, obviously, and I think that that's going to continue. But at the same time, we've seen this proxy war strategy become something that we're we're proud of uh, under Obama. It was the Free Syrian Army, you know, the Syrian rebels and things like that. And there was demonstrations in their favor. Um, trying to, it's funny because they dehumanize these people so often, like Arabs and Eastern Europeans. But they're trying to humanize them when they need them for these proxy wars. Like you said, the military-industrial complex does not care. This is a profit-seeking thing. And I think that you know they're trying to. Look, they still want to expand U.S. influence, but they know they can't project power the way a global empire can anymore. And at the same time, they also know our economy is built on that global empire, right? I mean, how much of our economy is defense? Uh, as far as manufacturing goes and things like that, the largest companies are defense manufacturing. Um, right now, I mean, we face a lot of economic problems, and I think that the biggest thing keeping us afloat is probably sending money to these two wars because essentially that money is being used to buy our weaponry or rebuy it or whatever. And I think that this is an economic interest as much as it is uh, a military one. And I think that we're seeing the U.S. kind of deal with its fading light as far as the economic and military superpower goes. We're trying to exert influence when we don't have the ability to do so with our actual military and we don't have the ability to do so with weapons anymore. And we don't, obviously, we never vetted where weapons went anyway. We never, that never worked. Uh, look at the Taliban. That's, you know, 40 years old now. Um, I think we're just, it's a dying empire, right? It's its kicking out. It's trying to do something. And it, this is, a, unfortunately, all I can think to do. It's like when we left Afghanistan, Tulsi Gabbard assured Tucker that 
oh, we're going to have drones over it all the time, right? There's always going to be a way to project power, but that's clearly not working as effectively as they want it to. Yeah, it has been interesting to see, you know, that attempt to keep power, I guess, by the U.S. empire as a whole. Also, we're seeing it now by Joe Biden. But when it comes to his low approval rating, one of the things that Americans are citing is the fact that he has continued to stand with Israel, refused to support any kind of ceasefire, and refused to use any leverage that the U.S. has over Israel to say, hey, let's cut down on civilian casualties. Let's, you know, stop with this ongoing bombardment. And sure, it's one thing when Biden comes out and he says, oh, well, we told Israel to follow international humanitarian law, but we're not seeing any action coming out of Washington really enforcing those calls. What kind of a message is the Biden administration sending to the world right now with its policy towards Israel? I think much like it's it's sends in Ukraine that they're, you know, we're willing to basically let other people die for our success. I mean, if you look at Israel specifically, well, I guess Ukraine too, both of these countries would no longer exist should U.S. funding stop. Like you said, Joe Biden's not using any leverage here to do anything. Um, you know, we're seeing these hospitals bombed, these children taken out of incubators. Uh, there's over, what, 4,000 children dead and 11,000 dead total in Gaza at this point. Uh, I think that the U.S. is saying, you know, we're willing to stand by our imperial commitments. Look at the way we treated we treat NATO and Ukraine. We want all of NATO to sort of rally behind us, even though this is extremely unpopular everywhere. But the thing I don't understand is why Biden is so vocal about it, because this is so bad with his voter base. Um, I think that I guess his approval rating has nowhere to really go. You know, it's not going to go too much lower. It's already pretty low. But I think that the thing is, is we're trying to show that we are a strong country and we are trying to show that we are still the leader of the military world and the free world or whatever you want to call it. But I think that, you know, I don't know what Biden's exact thoughts are, but I think that the fact is that we want to show that our allies can do what they want. And I think that honestly, that looks better for the Ukraine or uh, our European allies. If we say we're going to stand by Israel, no matter what, we're going to let them do what they want. I think other people can see that. And I, I think the idea the selling point is we'll let you do that, too, as long as you fully support, you know, you're fully in bed with us. But the thing is, that's not working anymore. You're even seeing like centers like Macron in France ask for a ceasefire. Um, I, but it's just standing tall to try and make people fall in line. And it's not working. Look at how bad NATO has fallen apart in the last 10 years or so. Yeah, it does seem like they are on that trajectory at the moment. You know, it's interesting because. Biden is in this place where he's desperate for more funding for Ukraine. He's trying to tie it to aid for Israel because he knows that that's something that Republicans in Congress will pass, even if they're skeptical about aid for Ukraine. But at the same time, we have Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, who just made a trip over to Kiev. And he's sitting there and he's saying, hey, we're going to keep standing with you, blah, blah, blah. But he's not there with all of the new weapons and new money and the things that Ukraine really wants right now. What kind of a situation are we really being set up for when it comes to the status of Ukraine and the U.S. not passing more aid for the country? I expect that Congress will, but because they haven't yet, what kind of a position does that put Ukraine in right now? Yeah, I expect they will, too. But I think that the gaps are a dangerous point, right? When the funding runs out from the last stipend to the next one, I think that could be a dangerous moment. And I think in one of those moments, you know, depending on how long 
we've seen Congress be held up for a while. I mean, they, they flipped speakers recently and tried to vote in new ones, couldn't do that for a week. And be, before that, when they tried to vote a speaker, it took them 17 votes or whatever, you know, 13 votes. And I think that the message that we're sending to Ukraine publicly is we'll stand with you. But I mean, a lot of military leaders and a lot of people are going over there telling them, look, there may be moments where the funding dries up. And whether that's temporary or not, I think the temporary gaps could actually end up leaving Ukraine in a spot where they're going to have to negotiate. You're seeing some advisors and some spokespeople for the government or other candidates running for president. We're now talking about, well, you're going to have to make some kind of deal with Russia and you may lose out on territory. And I think that's going to be relayed to Ukraine more in the future because the political situation, you know, what depending on the next election year could change to a point where that gap either doesn't stop or it gets longer at least. And I think that Ukraine's going to have to figure something out. Obviously, um, the Ukrainian government is going to have to figure out whether they really want to keep fighting this on their dime, which I don't think they can. Other NATO members are running out of money to keep funding this. You know, the Poles are getting tired of it. The Western Europeans are getting tired of it. Uh, I think that we're looking at a moment where the gap could mean something. You know, a one-month gap in Ukraine funding where it should be there could do something. We've already sent cluster bombs and had these stoppages in funding for the moment. I think we're seeing them, you know, they're, they're preparing Ukraine to sort of accept something, but what they're going to accept, I don't know. And I, I think Biden's thought may be push this off until after the election, which I don't think is possible. Yeah, it has been interesting. I know his initial, well, I guess his current plan is in his $106 billion wish list is to basically include funding for Ukraine for the year so that we don't have to keep talking about this because it was real popular last year for Congress to get together and say, oh, we're going to send a few more billion to Ukraine. We'll approve that. Great. But now that it's become an issue, he's wanting to just get a full year's worth of funding passed that way. We don't have to talk about it until I guess he hopes that he's been reelected and then he gets to push for even more going from there. But when it comes down to this ongoing support for these ongoing wars, as we're seeing, you know, with Biden trying to argue, oh, we can fund Israel, we can fund Ukraine, we've got, you know, we're the United States, of course, we're able to do all of this. When it comes down to the reality of this, do you think that there is the public support for all of this war, including that ongoing support for Israel that the U.S. has proposed? I don't think so. I think, as you know, with Ukraine, like you said, the multiple aid packages sent in these giant billions of dollar chunks, I think has really irked a lot of people, um, mo mostly on the right or, in, you know, some on the farther left, too, obviously. But the centrists sort of like Ukraine, but now they're having to deal with Israel, right, where they're seeing billions go to Israel and full support for literal war crimes and, you know, tens of thousands, over 10,000 dead, I think the wars are becoming unpopular to a point where they're not sustainable with any base. You know, there may still be Ukraine supporters out there. I'm sure there's still people with the Ukrainian flag in their Twitter handle or whatever. But I think that the point is you know, the money coming out is a problem, right? People are having a harder time affording things. People are having a hard time getting by. There's less money saved now than there was during the pandemic. You know, people have ate through their savings. Um, the only people benefiting from this are shareholders and defense contractors, right? And you can't really say we're sending all this money over there, but don't worry, it comes back to us when it all goes to you know Northrop Grumman or whatever, because people aren't seeing that. Maybe the dollars kept afloat for a little while longer, but nobody's seeing the actual benefits of this in their you know their daily life. So I think that's why they become extremely unpopular. And now, with Biden standing with Israel and then seeing the horrors that they're carrying out in Gaza 
and you're seeing it much more vividly than you saw anything in Ukraine. You know, there's already the civilian deaths in Ukraine weren't taken for much, but Gaza is mostly civilians. You know, this is a ton of civilians. I there's not as it's very obvious they're all crammed in one of the most crowded places on earth, and seeing all these people slaughtered, and then telling you know you're doing it for what a couple hundred people who were taken hostage and killed on October seventh. That the response is not proportionate, and I think a lot of people see that. It's are and as far as the ground invasion advancing, the more these stories come out about the hostels and things like that, people are going to ask, "Why are my billions of dollars going to that?" Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you know we have seen that in Ukraine when it comes down to the frustration over the lack of transparency and accountability, and people going, well, "Wait a second, we've sent all this money, and really we have nothing to show for it." Now we're in a position where. Congress is wanting to send even more money to Israel. And you're right. I think that social media certainly is also playing a role because it's showing us the reality of what is happening on the ground there. Now, I also want to ask you about the regional aspect here, because I know that when it comes to Israel, they're obviously they're bombing everybody as they've been bombing you know, Lebanon and Syria. But when it comes to those concerns about other entities really getting involved, we've seen a lot of patients coming from Hezbollah and from Iran especially. Are there still major concerns that this could break out into more of a regional war? I think, you know, I don't think there's as much concern that a regional war is going to come about. But I think the problem is that this could easily set back um, relations with between Israel and people they want to be friends with, right? The Saudis, the Qataris, the Emiratis. I think that's a huge issue because Look, the harder you are on Gaza, the harder it's going to be to sell these uh, Arab populations in the Gulf on, you know, some type of normalization with Israel. You know, if you want to get Israeli planes in the Saudi airspace, you're not going to be able to do this Gaza operation. And I think that's going to be the real drawback in the region. Um, Turkey, too. Obviously, Turkey is a sort of outlier as far as NATO allies go. And they've been tired of these operations in the Middle East and what we've endorsed in the Middle East since the Syrian war. Well, since Iraq began, really. But they've become even more vocal since Syria started really going off. And I think you're seeing Iran is going to have an easier time probably dealing with the Gulf countries after this, because the idea of the Arab countries where it's been so ingrained that Israel is an enemy for the last 70 years is going to be harder to wash away, especially now after they're all, all these people are seeing what's happening in Gaza and they've always been sympathizers with the Palestinians. So I think that the real fallout is going to be these people who are going to sign normalization treaties. And even now, the leaders in those countries, too, can now see that the IDF is not as hyper-competent as they thought it was. They can see Israel's intelligence isn't as great as they thought it was. And they can see that this is not the partner they thought they were getting in bed with, right? Um, and Iran, Hezbollah, they've obviously said they're—you know, Hezbollah has made a—Nasrallah uh, made a pretty tepid statement saying we're basically holding back unless it spills over, which, fair enough, you know, they're not a full-fledged military. And Syria—I mean, Syria's trying to clean up from their own— quote-unquote, civil war that they're still going to have to be dealing with. But the idea of normalization or even stabilization with these countries right next door to Israel is going to be harder to pull off. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point, and I think good to keep in mind at the end of the day. Do you think that that's something that Israel is even thinking about right now? Because it seems like they are just so zeroed in on wanting control of the Gaza Strip that they are... Do you think that they are thinking about the long-term aspect, or do you think that they are just assuming that everyone is going to 
fall in line eventually and forget about this, what has now become ethnic cleansing of the Gaza Strip. And we've got about a minute left here. I think what they hope with the U.S. assistance, they can maybe get back to the normalization process. But I don't really see that going smoothly. But I do think they are mostly focused on ethnically cleansing the Gaza Strip, essentially, because Netanyahu is being challenged by the right. And, you know, in Israel, you're seeing the right wing put up these missing posters for the hostages still in Gaza. And you're seeing this opposition to Netanyahu. He's got a lot to worry about domestically. And at the same time, this has always been a part of the, Gaza, you know, the Zionist project is to make greater Israel. So they're seeing a chance to go for one of their long term goals. And Netanyahu is trying to find some way to buy himself more time in government by essentially doing what a lot of right wing Zionists want, the people who put him in power in this coalition he's in now. Yeah, it's interesting to see the goals that they decide to pursue and the ones that they could end up losing as a result of it. James Carey, editor and co-founder of Geopolitics Alert. Thank you so much for your time and insight today. Thank you. And it's time now for a quick break. But coming up next hour, Argentina just elected a new president.